Good to see everybody here on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you can go ahead and open to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we are going to be here in just a moment or two. What a beautiful day God has created for us to gather together as His children, to think about Him to honor Him with our lips and with our hearts this morning. As we are early in another new year, I think it is a, a good opportunity for us to uh, do some self-reflection. And that's really what we're going to do in both of our lessons this morning. In this session, we're going to think more about reflecting on our life uh, individually and personally, and then in the worship hour, uh, Lord willing, we're going to kind of think about reflecting as a congregation on some of the work that uh, we have done and some things that are before us in this new year. But of course, every day that we wake up, really, we begin with a new slate, a clean slate. At least we have the opportunity to do so. We uh, read in the Word of God that uh, God's mercies are new every morning. And whatever we have done in the past, that's in the past. But we have a new opportunity to begin uh, afresh. And we have the opportunity now, I think, to put the past year behind us and to uh, reach forward to what is coming, hopefully, in this new year that lies ahead. In short, we all have the opportunity to make 2023 the best year spiritually that we have ever lived that we're going to live more for the Lord Jesus Christ and we're going to be more committed to Him. And one of the ways that we can do that is to resolve that starting today on January the 8th, 2023, that we are going to be people who are going to first give ourselves to the Lord. And we're going to continue to give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ every day throughout this year. So this morning, I want us to take that particular thought to look at some first century Christians. Drew already alluded to this in his prayer, the Macedonian saints who did that very thing, and then consider three reasons why it is important for us to first give ourselves to the Lord, not only today, but throughout uh, this new year. So I want to begin reading here from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first five verses. 2 Corinthians 8, beginning at verse 1. Paul writes here, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected, But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. You might remember, just thinking back in your mind toward the end of the first letter that Paul wrote to the church here at Corinth. If you go back to the last chapter of that first letter in chapter 16, the first few verses of that chapter, Paul is speaking to them about uh, collecting money and collecting funds and to do that Uh, while he is away from them so that when he returns to them, they will have to scramble around and collect funds to especially give 
uh, to their needy brethren in Jerusalem. Paul mentioned back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 3 their gift to Jerusalem. And now here in his second letter, Paul is coming back to that particular thought. He's revisiting that topic, especially when we come to chapters 8 and 9. As we just mentioned, there were some needy saints in Jerusalem. Paul was not only urging the church here at Corinth to send funds to support or to help their brethren that were in need in Judea and Jerusalem, but he was really uh, issuing that appeal to churches all over the first century world. And so as he was writing 2 Corinthians, as he mentions here as chapter 8 opens, that the churches in Macedonia had already done that. They had already sent funds. And he was writing, I think, to urge the church here at Corinth to really follow through on the pledge or the commitment that they had made to support and supply the needs of their brethren in Judea and Jerusalem to follow through on their commitment by following the example of the Macedonian brethren. So how do the saints in Macedonia give? I know uh, in the past few months, the men that have given us talks before our collection have often referred to this particular passage, and they've done a good job, I think, of taking our minds back to the example of the Christians in the churches in Macedonia. But just to refresh our memory, how did the saints in Macedonia give? Well, if you look here at verses 2 and two through 4, Paul says that they were afflicted. Maybe for being Christians, they were suffering persecution and afflictions for following Christ. He says they were poor financially. Paul says that they, though, were begging him, that they were urging him to be involved in this good work of supporting brethren that were just like them, that were in need. They wanted to participate in this good work. Paul didn't have to go to the churches of Macedonia and and, uh, stay on them (laughs) until they gave something. No, they were asking him to be a part of this work. They were Christians, brethren, who were giving willingly. They were giving liberally. They were giving above and beyond their ability. Paul says there at verse uh, 4 that they were giving with an abundance of joy. Back in verse 2. So you can just see uh, how these brethren were so excited, it seems to me, to be able to have this opportunity to be in fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ in a different part of the world. In short, I think we could say that the Macedonian churches exceeded Paul's every expectation. And Paul had expectations, I think, of the church here in Corinth, and he is drawing their attention again to what the churches in Macedonia in that region of the world were already doing, had already done and saying, follow their example. This is how I want you to give. But why did they give as they did? Well, the answer is really what we're going to think about in this session this morning. They gave to help their brethren in need because they had first given themselves to the Lord. This wasn't something that they just woke up one morning and said, hey, I think it's a good thing for us to help our needy brethren in a different part of the world. No, because they had made a commitment first to Jesus Christ because they were joyful about serving him, even in their affliction and poverty. They were joyful in serving their brethren, that those two seemed to go hand in hand. And I think Paul makes that connection for us here at verse 5 again. He says, this not as we'd expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, yes, and to us by the will of God, that they realized that because they had first given themselves to Jesus Christ, that meant then that they were going to first give themselves to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And they were going to give themselves to one another because they had first given themselves 
to the Lord. What a great statement for Paul to make about these Christians in Macedonia. What a great example for the church here in Corinth to follow. What a great example for us to follow today. So with that thought in mind, I want us to consider just three reasons why we need to be like the Macedonian saints, why we need to be people at the beginning of this new year who have first given ourselves to the Lord. The first reason I want you to think about as to why we should give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ is because he first gave himself to us. How did God show himself? God has shown himself. He has revealed himself in a number of ways, hasn't he? He's revealed himself in the creation. He has revealed himself in this word that we are reading and studying from this morning. But he has also revealed himself, I think, in the most, the, the, the most complete way through his son, Jesus Christ, and God giving himself by giving us his son. So I want us to think for just a few minutes about some questions about Jesus. Who is God's son? Why don't you go, first of all, to the gospel of, of John. And the early part is John opens his uh, record of the, the life uh, of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, Verses 1 and 2, John says here, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think we all realize this, but I, I believe it's worth reminding ourselves of this particular truth, that the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, is God. He is God just as much as the Father is God. He is God just as much as the Holy Spirit is God. And I believe Paul, or John rather, is pointing that out to us at the very beginning of this book of a long list of evidence as to who Jesus is. That yes, he was a man. Yes, he came in human form. Yes, he is the Word in the flesh, but he is the Word. He is God. He is the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, John takes that thought and just fleshes it out, gives us all kinds of details to support that particular thesis or truth throughout his gospel. Also, I want us to think early on in the gospel of, of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, about who uh, Jesus is, about who God's Son is. Matthew chapter 1 is the angel has come to uh, Joseph and he's telling him, about things that are going on, telling him about Mary and that she is with child. And I want you to notice here, beginning at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1, the Bible says to us, when, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means or translated means God with us. So as we continue thinking about who God's son is, that God's son is Jesus. That's what the angel is telling Joseph here. His name shall be called Jesus, that he's going to save his people from their sins. And of course, we know his people is not just the Jews, not just the Israelites, but it's going to be everyone. That everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, would have the opportunity to be saved from their sins 
through Jesus Christ. He came into the world as Emmanuel. The angel says, God with us. That God is now stepping into our realm, as it were. God is taking on flesh, as John said, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we were able to behold Him and to see God the Father. Well, why did God give His Son? I think just a very simple answer to that is found in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3 and verse 16, a well-known passage to us, I'm sure, where the text says there that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is because of God's immense and eternal love for us. I don't know that any of us can really fathom or understand fully, surely. We cannot fully understand the depths of God's love for us. We we cannot understand the lengths of God's love for us, that God has loved us from eternity, even before He created us. But His love for us is so strong that He gave His Son to save us eternally. That if we will come to Him, if we will leave the darkness behind, as John goes on to talk about here in this text in the next few verses, and come to the light, come to the one who is the light of the world, Jesus, that we can have eternal life. Well, when did God do all of this? When did God give his son to save us? To answer that question, go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. And let's notice here, beginning at verse 6. Romans 5 and verse 6, the apostle Paul says, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Did God give us his son? Did Jesus come as Jesus, the one who would save his people from his sins? Did he come as Emmanuel, God with us, when we deserved salvation? When we were lovely people, when we were lovable people? No, Paul says the exact opposite to us here in Romans chapter 5. It is when we were weak. He says it's when we were sinners, when we were enemies of God. That God sent His Son to die for us. God sent His Son to this world to reconcile us to Himself. God sent His Son to this world to save us from eternal wrath. The wrath of God that will be on us if we reject Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So be impressed with the fact that God did not wait upon us to first give ourselves to Him. No, He first gave Himself by giving the very best that He could. He gave us His one and only Son. So when we consider how gracious and how generous God's gift to us is, His Son, Jesus Christ, surely that ought to cause us to first give ourselves to Him as the Macedonian brethren did. If you're looking for a motivation, if you're looking for a reason to commit yourself to Jesus Christ this year or to more fully commit yourself to Him, I think we could really stop the lesson here this morning and say that's enough because God has first given Himself 
to us. But I want to give you a second reason as to why we should first give ourselves to the Lord this year, and that is because He requires true followers, true disciples of His to do that very thing. There's a number of texts I think we could look at to make this particular point, but I want you to go to the the Gospel of Luke for just a minute in chapter 14. Uh, Jesus says something about this uh, in Matthew chapter 10 and and Luke chapter 9 as well. But I want you to think about what is said here at Luke chapter 14, uh, beginning at verse 25. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. We'll read through 27 as well. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I think Jesus, you know, he's not beating around the bush here. He's not uh, talking in terms that we can't understand. Sometimes Jesus maybe kind of, kind of veiled his message in, in ways that some of the crowds and even his disciples are kind of left wondering, huh? You know, what, what is he really saying to us? What is the message to us? But it seems at this point he is very direct, very to the point. And Jesus makes it very clear that we must first give ourselves to him if we're going to be true disciples because as he said, we cannot be disciples if we love our earthly lives more than we love him. Some of these things that he mentions here in verse 26, I mean, this is certainly not uh, the easy way to live our life, at least from a worldly perspective, that if we're going to come to him, we have to hate our parents, that we have to hate our children, that we have to hate our spouse. I don't believe he's using the word hate there in the way that we do, like we need to hate those people. But he's using it in comparison to our love for him, that we need to love even those most precious of earthly relationships less than we love him, that we need to be uh, more committed to him, that he must be our first and true and only love. And all of that is hard, but then you get toward the end of that list at verse 26. He says, and yes, even his own life. We might be saying to Jesus, no, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, you're getting a little bit personal now. You're stepping on my toes, even myself. But that's what Jesus demands of his disciples, that we have to be people who love him deeper and more than we love even ourselves. And I think he continues to talk to us about what that means in verse 27, that we have to carry our own cross, that we have to come after him, that we have to be true followers of his. Paul says something very similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, if we're if we're looking for motivation this year to uh, be people who are, have first given ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul really goes back to what we discussed in the first point here about Jesus, God, giving himself first to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 14 and 15. Paul writes here, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Jesus died for us that we might live for him. Jesus didn't suffer on the cross like he did. Jesus didn't leave the the glory that he experienced with uh, with his heavenly father from eternity to come to this world to become 
God with us to become God in the flesh, the Word who took on flesh. He didn't do all of that so that we could just look at the cross and then go about our own life and live for ourselves. No, Paul says that he died so that we could live for him, so that we could give up our earthly life. So that means, in very practical terms, that we have to be people who are willing to give up ourselves. We have to be willing to give up our dreams and our goals and our desires in life. And we have to be people who are devoting ourselves and committing ourselves to accomplishing Christ's dreams and Christ's goals and Christ's desires for us as his followers. What greater motivation could there be than to look at the love of Christ for each one of us that he died for us and he died for us so that we could die to ourselves so that we could live for him. And so as Christians, we are certainly people who profess to be followers of Christ. We say many times or think that our goal is to be like him, to be his true disciples. And if that truly is our heart's desire, we're going to be like the Macedonian Christians. We're going to be people who are first giving ourselves to the Lord. That can manifest itself certainly in that particular uh, example that we can give financially to help our brethren in need, but that's going to manifest itself in a lot of ways, a lot of areas in our life. And we'll talk uh, about some of those uh, things maybe a little bit later in our uh, lesson in the, in the worship hour this morning. But thirdly, we, we must first give ourselves to the Lord Jesus because he will reward us for doing so. When we make that decision, that commitment to first give ourselves to the Lord he is going to reward us greatly. I don't know that that should so much be our motivation. I'm trying to stress this morning to you, all of you and to myself, that our motivation primarily should be because of what God has done for us, because of what Christ has done for us, because Christ gave up everything. He became poor and yet he is rich for us. But still the fact remains as we read our New Testaments that there is the promise that God makes to us, that Christ makes to us, that if we are willing to first give ourselves to him and make him the first commitment in our life, that we are going to be rewarded for that. And the rewards will come both perhaps in this age, but certainly in the age that is to come. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Luke for just a moment in chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, Jesus here kind of at the middle of this chapter has uh, the conversation with the rich young ruler, I think we're all familiar with that, that this young man came to Jesus asking him a good question. Teacher, what must I do to, uh, to inherit eternal life? I mean, who doesn't want to know the answer to that question? What, how do I need to live my life? What kind of choices do I need to make so that I can inherit eternal life? And, and I think that this young man was very sincere in asking this question. There doesn't seem to be any indication here in Luke 18 or Mark 10 or, or uh, Matthew chapter 19 that this young man came with ulterior motives. It doesn't seem like he was coming like the scribes and Pharisees trying to trap Jesus or back him into a corner with the answer that he would give to this question. I think he really wanted to know, what do I need to do? How do I need to live to inherit eternal life? We probably remember how that conversation went, that this young man thought, well, hey, I've been religious. I, I've been uh, one who has tried to be obedient to God throughout, even from my youth, that I've obeyed all these commands that he lists there. And Jesus said, that's well and good, but you remember what Jesus told him, that you need to 
uh, there at verse 22. You need to sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. It's not enough that this young man would just sell all of his possessions and give the proceeds of those sales to the poor if he didn't come and follow Jesus, if he did not first give himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think maybe that's kind of where his hangup was, even though verse 23 makes it clear that he went away sorrowful because he was extremely rich. But he had first given himself to himself, it seems to me, even though he thought he was serving God. He had kept all these commands. He had first given himself to his riches, to the blessings that God had given him, rather than first giving himself to God. So the disciples are listening to this conversation, and we'll pick up there at verse 28. Peter said, Behold, to Christ, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And notice the response of Jesus there at verse 29. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So Peter and the other apostles are listening to what Jesus had to say, what this young, rich young ruler had to say. And Peter, you know, speaking for the group as he normally did, he's thinking, well, we, we've left everything. We've left our own and we have followed you. And I think even though he doesn't ask it as a question, he's just making a statement there in that verse. I think it is kind of implied, at least it seems to me, that he's asking a question or saying to Jesus, we have done that. <laughs> we have given up our possessions. We have left our own. And we have made the decision to come and follow you. We have first given ourselves to you as our Lord and Savior. What, what, what is there for us then? This young man had a choice, just as these 12 apostles did, and he, at least on this occasion, refused to first give himself to the Lord, and so he would not inherit eternal life. But the 12 were not like him, because as Peter had told Jesus, as we just read here, they had left their own, or Matthew says in Matthew 19 and verse 27, that they, Peter says, we have left everything and they had left their own. They had left everything. They had left their family. They had left their business. They had left their comfortable life behind to come and follow Jesus Christ. These were men. Yes, they were imperfect men. Yes, they were men that really didn't, I don't think, get the mission of Jesus, at least in its fullness. Even as he was ascending back to his Father in heaven in Acts chapter 1, thinking about the kingdom. Maybe they, they didn't have a clear concept of what his kingdom was all about, that it was a spiritual reign, that it was a spiritual relationship between Christ and those who would be his followers, his subjects. Yes, they had a, didn't have everything together, but they had made a commitment to follow Jesus. They had first given themselves to him. Would they be rewarded for that choice? And Jesus, I think, in his answer here at verses 29 and 30 is saying, yes. He is shouting, yes, you will be rewarded. In essence, I think he was saying that God would give them blessings now and later, that they were men who had made the decision that they had left their house behind. Those who, those who were married among the apostles had left their wives behind, at least for a time, to travel around this part of the world with Jesus Christ. They had left their brothers, their parents, their children. They had left their businesses behind. They had left their livelihood behind. 
And Jesus says to them, you are going to receive many times as much at this time, but also in the age to come, eternal life, that they would have a new family. Those 12 men would be their family. The disciples of Jesus Christ, as the, the masses, the multitudes grew over time in following Jesus Christ, that would be their family. As Jesus would say in the gospel accounts when he was preaching, I think it was in his own hometown, if I remember correctly, and some in the crowd said to him, your, your mother and your brothers and sisters are waiting outside to talk to you. And he said, who is my mother and brother and sister except the one who does the will of God? That that, that is your family, that God provides for us. And we may not have everything that we want in this life, but we certainly enjoy the blessings of God because we have made the decision that we're going to first give ourselves to the Lord but even if we suffer tremendously in this life for that decision, Jesus says very clearly here at verse 30, and in the age to come. The same is true for us today, brothers and sisters. When we first give ourselves to the Lord, He gives us so many rich spiritual blessings in this present age. But also in the age to come, things that we, I don't, I don't know that we can even begin to comprehend Things that, that in our wildest dreams and imaginations, we can't even begin to know the joy that is going to be there in the age to come. What eternal life in its fullest sense really will be like. And so, yes, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ certainly ought to motivate us, especially on those days when it's hard for us to get out of bed in the morning, when we don't feel like first giving ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ on that particular day, that ought to motivate us but also thinking about the great reward that God has promised to us in the age to come will motivate us, surely, to be people who are first giving ourselves to Him. So, here's the takeaway. You and I have an opportunity today. doesn't matter what we did last week or last year, but we have an opportunity today to start afresh. We have an opportunity today at the beginning of this new year to first give ourselves to the Lord. So I want you to think about that today and perhaps this week and to really examine yourself honestly. Have I first given myself to the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, why not do that today? There's not a better time than today to start or to get back on that journey of giving yourself to the Lord. Well, you've listened really well. And I hope you'll keep those thoughts in mind as we go throughout our day. Let's be dismissed to our classes now.